Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Sometimes something has to be art before it can be anything else. This episode is the story of a new performance artwork, born out of the particular circumstance of coronavirus, but responding to the more enduring condition of scarcity mindset. We will be examining this scarcity worldview as a primal human instinct that makes us a danger to others and ultimately to ourselves. Scarcity takes only instinct and no imagination to believe in. Abundance mindset is its notional opposite and encapsulates an explosion of imaginative ways to live, to which there is no limit. This new performance artwork was designed to help us collectively orient ourselves away from scarcity and to imagine together a post-coronavirus world characterized by abundance. On a Friday evening in early March 2020, I set out with my phone and my heart, charged up ready to film the three-year-awaited launch of my husband's new album. Despite the growing murmurs of coronavirus, there was no official lockdown for the UK, and so the gig at the Seabright Arms in Bethnal Green was packed with friends, fam and fans. The scenes captured on my phone were beautiful to me, evoking a fellowship of a faithful but endangered few who actively support the arts and are still willing to pay to hear music. This thicket of cheerful drunken faces was so pretty, so easy on the eye, that you can see why scenes like these become tropes within marketing imagery. Less than a week later, someone posted footage on Facebook of a song recorded in a large stadium packed with thousands of people. The song was pretty and hopeful, The footage spanning the large crowd was edited to inspire and uplift. But the reaction I had was in equal parts fear and horror. Simply the sight of any gathering so large, no matter what the intentions or outputs, was as triggering for me as though someone had posted uncensored graphic war footage on my feed. The stuff you want to report to Facebook. I knew then that I was now living in a new world, one I was unprepared for, where signs and symbols and cultural practices that once had stable meanings were now deconstructed and in flux. The fear of this one image was just the beginning of a fear I had never in my life known, the fear of the worst, stuff like war and poverty, and within it all, uncertainty stuff I'd known of but not known myself. A fear that was now thrust out of the cushiony academic and conceptual spaces I feel relaxed in into a pulsating present reality that had taken over my breathing, had tightened my muscles and was sweating through my pores. 
the fear of national and global economic collapse, of poverty, of inability to access food, of job loss, of mental health breakdown, of relational breakdown, of disconnection, of loneliness. Who and what would we be at the other end of this? When would the other end of this even come? When the economic dust settles, who will be the new global superpower? And what will they do with that power? To whom will we be beholden? And what will they demand of us? All of this, knowing that I was experiencing just my personal portion of fear, that this fear was as viral and epidemiological as COVID itself. This fact alone raised another level of fear in me. It was the fear of the other. As I heard someone reflect recently, a hungry human is a dangerous animal. What do hungry, desperate Brits look like? What do they do? What would they do to me? Who might I have to fight to get access to food? My eyes scanned my home. How easy would it be to break into by desperate and dangerous fellow humans? Where would I position myself and with what weapon in hand? Why the f*** had we not already built a bunker? In all of this, I sensed in myself something deeply primal and over which I had no resources to manage. It wasn't just thoughts. It was fully physiological. Like my fingernails were turning into claws my mouth pursing so tight it was more beak-like than lip-like, my teeth extending into fangs and my eyes sharpening and reddening. I felt the readiness to kill for my kin. This was a new fear for me, but a fear that many within the majority world have been forced to face chronically and more acutely. In my inexperience, I had no tools or resources to manage it, And so it seems, nor did many others, as the stories of panic buying and hoarding and supermarket brawls flooded. But I was a Christian, a follower of Jesus. I was an ally of peace, maybe even a good guy. A searchlight went on in my mind for the familiar scripts of my childhood faith. There's no fear in love, trust and obey, take it to the cross, don't be anxious about anything. With all its strength of familiarity, none of this felt substantial in the face of this rising, visceral fear beast within me. I realized that I was riddled with scarcity mindset, once dormant and localized to a small alcove of my brain, now with the run of the house, my whole self consumed by it. Scarcity mindset is a worldview, a way of seeing and making sense of the world that informs how you live. Scarcity mindset is the belief that, fundamentally, there is not enough of anything. Not enough food, not enough space, not enough time. Everything we need, there isn't enough of. It can manifest in the smallest of ways, like someone's walk just being a bit fast, with their head tilted forward slightly, as though they're kind of always needing to get ahead of time because it's running out. It could be envying the promotion of your friend, because you assume that in the order of nature, 
their good fortune will mean your bad fortune. Or buying new clothes each week to substantiate your identity. Because if you don't, you sense that it will diminish into invisibility. It can manifest in the largest of ways. Like when scarcity-minded leaders like Hitler was known to be take to war in order to acquire more. More power. More land. Scarcity mindset believes everything in existence is characterized by a lacking, including our very selves. I am not enough. So I must keep producing and outputting to make up for that. I am not enough, so I must keep consuming to make up for that. This lacking in myself, in everything, leads me to compete rather than to cooperate and share. And here's the thing, scarcity mindset, which underwrites and informs our competitive culture, becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, which then reinforces our belief in it. When he was narrating an allegory of the origins of scarcity, Ben Quash put it like this, someone said, me, and then there was nothing to be gained by saying, us. This is scarcity mindset, the opposite of abundance mindset, that begins with someone saying, there is enough. And that if we ever lived it out, abundance mindset would also become a self-fulfilling truth, as resources would be shared and not squandered, hoarded, exploited or depleted. The admission of my own scarcity mindset felt like taking the first step in an AA program. It was as real and damaging as alcoholism, and I was as helpless as an alcoholic to do anything about it. But where on earth can I confess such instincts as these? Who can I confess to that my instinct is to look out for myself at their expense? Alan de Botton is right. We have inherited as much bad as good from the romantics. And one of the bad things is that we have to convince ourselves and everyone else that we're always well-intentioned beings and never brats, which closes down the chance to confess our uglier impulses. Though de Botton is actively and explicitly atheist, he believes that we need to recover St. Augustine's view of original sin or original assholeness as the antidote to the romantic idealism of humanity, which, as he would put it, is driving us insane. Instead of a properly enchanted and sacramental view of people that actually accommodates our capacity for sin, we have a poor counterfeit of this, which is a sentimentalized view of ourselves that allows no admission of sin. He says that instead of trying to impress each other on first dates, we should spare each other by listing all the ways in which we are assholes. He's right. As part of our mental wellness, we need to build into our culture, into our relationships, free space to be able to confess our assholeness to each other and not have the response be either romantic whitewashing over it, which is invalidating, or rejection, which is humiliating. We need social contracts that allow regular and safe mutual confessions. How else can we hope to move into real and progressive reconciliation 
individually and collectively. To truly see myself and my others as sacred beings, I need to grant myself and them the dignity, the three-D-ness, the fully developed characterness of someone who can be, and sometimes is, a dick. Comedian Rosie Jones jokes about how one of the ways that she benefits as a disabled person from being reduced to a 2D caricature of a being is that people assume the fixed trope of the deserving pauper upon her and never dare to assume that she might, in fact, be a dickhead. Rosie enjoys capitalising on the opportunity this gives her to be a secret dick. But however much she jokes... She, like all of us, wants to be seen and known for the fullness of her being and to discover in the knownness for all she is that she is accepted on those terms, not judged and marginalised, but loved and included. Many of us are speaking at the moment about the opportunities within coronavirus for us to re-enter society once it's over, as more compassionate and communal people and with a more compassionate and communal lifestyle. We've been inspired. But we need two things beyond inspiration. We need to design new rituals that can be practiced regularly so that we can retrain ourselves out of the scarcity habits that we are conditioned to. And we need to be honest about the fact that what we want here is something that runs against some of our deepest instincts. Borrowing from Brené Brown, who says, Courage starts by showing up and letting ourselves be seen. We might add to that, that kindness starts by responding, I see you, as you are, and love you. As the 19th century Australian poet Adam Lindsay Gordon wrote, Life is mostly froth and bubble. Two things stand like stone. Kindness in another's trouble. Courage in your own. In response to all of this, at FUR, we've launched a new performance artwork called The Honest Shittison, a kindness and courage club. Hey, how's your day been, Jen? It's been all right. <laughs> yeah. I, only, I only ate two bags of crisps a day, which um, is a huge uh, improvement. This is my friend, Rachel. She's among the most decent people I know. She works in anti-corruption. She writes novels. She has a husband with as big an appetite for silliness as her. They have a baby girl who has his Ethiopian skin and from her Welsh side, dark red curly hair. They live with two other friends, and together they are currently hosting a weekly virtual pub for the locals. She will not cook a meal with less than nine different vegetables in it. She's tiny and pretty, but snores like a beast. Literally no one doesn't adore her, because she is the kindest person any of us know. And yet, Rachel was the first member of the Honest Shittison Club, because even she has scarcity mindset within her. Um, you know, I think I probably need to know a bit more about it. So, I mean, what is the Honest Citizen Club? Yeah, so it's it's Honest Citizen. 
<laughs> kindness, <laughs> kindness and courage club. And um, it's a club because it actually is a club. We are the first club, you and me. Amazing. But it's also a collaborative performance artwork because we are fair and fair is about making art. And mm-hmm. um, it's kind of, I guess, the newest of our art projects because it's a response to coronavirus specifically, even though what it deals with is um, helping people through anxiety and things like scarcity mentality, which I have discovered already existed in me. But just I think this particular scenario and um, this virus has kind of brought that out um, to the surface in a big way for me. What is scarcity mentality? How would you define that? So scarcity men- mentality or scarcity mindset is kind of something that's well documented both in from like in the therapy world but and sort of in psychology but also in religious traditions. And so for, within the Christian religious tradition, it's been well documented that one of the lenses upon which you can look at the whole story of the Bible is this kind of conflict between opposing worldviews and one worldview which Christians are saying is true and God was trying to work with Israelites to move them towards and to kind of develop them into is this idea of abundance mindset which is the idea that the fundamental core belief that there is enough and that we are provided for, but also not just that we are enough and that we have enough, but that the way of living that's based on an abundance mindset actually also is part of the way of actually securing the enough as well. So it's, um, it's like a truth, but it's also like a, um, a functional truth as well. Whereas scarcity mindset is like the idea that you, there is, there's just not enough. Um, and that therefore I then have to kind of compete or be aggressive against anybody who is my other Mm. in order to secure and protect the scarce resources that I feel I need. I've definitely had moments, I think, over the last month or so where I have, yeah, kind of retreated into stress and panic, which on its own is, you know, it happens, what can you do? But I think I've definitely had those moments where I've, questioned whether (laughs) I'm thinking about others as much as I could be or whether that fear is driving me into a a corner where um, I just take all the crisps for myself (laughs) 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 share them around or yeah so what might that look like kind of in the times we're living in right now you know with the COVID-19 crisis what would a scarcity mindset look like I think we've seen a lot of it initially in particular in relation to people going out and you know, sweeping the supermarkets of all of their toilet paper supply, that's become like a kind of a trope of this, this particular virus. And I think maybe some of that has settled down a little bit, but I think my concern is that the primal instinct that drives something like that is still within us. And we don't know what the rest of the journey of this experience is going to be like. We don't know what the kind of economy we're going to live in when, once we are out of lockdown and once, whenever the, the case is that coronavirus is under control. And so knowing that there's this kind of primal instinct within us to behave in a way that's kind of trying to secure things for myself at the expense of other people, you know, cause we know that if you, you know, people know that if they sweep the supermarket of all the toilet paper, they're depriving other people of access to it. So it's not just about getting what I need. It's about being prepared to get what I need at the expense of somebody else. The, the honest citizen club. Yeah. How, how has it been designed to kind of help club members combat this this mindset? Yeah, so it's got three different components and they're, they're kind of 
move between the three of them in a non-linear way. And they're designed to help us at the individual personal level, at the um, interrelational level, and then at the communal level. So that's why there's three different components. Um, And the first component is where anyone just forms amongst themselves a performance unit. That's a minimum of two people and a maximum of four people. And that performance unit then have their own agreement between them of how they will support each other. So it could be that they say, right, we are going to be a, a kind of lifeline for each other if there's moments when we're just feeling like the anxiety is overwhelming and we can call each other up. Any of us can call any of each other up between 8 a.m. and 8 p.m. any day of the week. Or it could be that you can call each other up anytime. Like you just decide yourself what works for you as a group. And then in those moments in which you might feel totally overwhelmed by anxiety, you can call up somebody else in your performance unit. And that person has been given really basic kind of set of things to be able to say to support the person in that moment. Mostly what you're just doing is listening and not judging and just encouraging them. But there would also be like just small little prompting things that you might say to to help just bring that person to a place of rest and maybe prompting them to breathe again and things like that. So nobody needs to be any kind of expert in that. It's just playing that really basic supportive available role to each other. And then the second part of it is a daily ritual that everybody does on their own, but commits to each other to do it every day. So it's just a, an audio meditation that's got some breathing exercises and got some nice meditative music soundscape to it. But the text within it is designed to have a kind of hypnotherapeutic effect to help build in a kind of an alternative narrative of, of abundance. There's a theologian, Walter Brueggemann, who would say that all oh, this kind of stuff is abundance liturgies. So they're liturgies and rituals that you do that help you to reorient from the default of scarcity mindset into something of abundance mindset. And that's the kind of thing that doesn't just happen by you just going, oh yeah, I think I, I want to believe that. It's these regular practices that help that worldview actually get under the skin of your consciousness and really like into your bones mm-hmm. and I guess form new neuro pathways. So everybody would agree in our performance unit. So we would agree to listen to that for 15 minutes mm-hmm. every day, once a day for six months with the idea that that would help build in some new reprogramming of the mind. And then the third thing is something that's more about um, having a community. And so this is where the club comes into oh. its, its for because this is Everybody who has formed an individual performance unit registers with her, gets a club membership card as a honest citizen. And then we have these bi-weekly kind of live streamed events where we can imagine together, do that kind of imaginative leadership work, that kind of the kind of campfirey type event where you can tell stories and and vision and dream together about what is the kind of post-COVID culture that we want to yeah. enter into, given that there is a kind of a blank sheet opportunity that comes with something as horrific as this experience to be culturally formative. I've heard you use the word performance um, quite a lot when you're talking about uh, this club and these rituals. Uh, Why is this club being called a performance? That's a really good question. Um, The club has been designed by conceptual artists at FUR and it forms ritual acts that are kind of performed live pieces of aesthetic and symbolic action. And so they're ritual acts with choreographed and repeated actions that are kind of like script following in a way. And in that sense, they create relational patterns or relational forms. And I suppose in that sense, it's what emerges out of that is something of what the art theorist Nicolas Bouriard termed relational aesthetics. 
which is, I guess, a part of performance art more broadly. So anyone who performs in the club effectively becomes part of the artwork themselves. That's what reminds me of the poem that sort of underwrites the name of this club, which is a poem by the Australian poet Adam Lindsay Gordon, where he talks about kindness and courage are the two things that stand like stone, that they are the things that have substantial and lasting form in our lives. And in that sense, it just got me to thinking around some of the language that performance artists like Gilbert and George have around the idea that in performance art, you become a living sculpture. And I think also because performance language is actually really appropriate language for an honest citizen like myself, because performance language works well for anyone who recognizes that there is something that they're trying to enter into, that they're trying to do that doesn't yet come naturally for them. So in that sense, it's, I'm trying to perform these abundance liturgies in order to try and cultivate an abundance mindset within myself, but it's not natural to me. So it's like a kind of training or a type of performance. And so at the unconscious level, I think evidence shows that routine rituals or cultural liturgies have the greatest power in determining what it is that we actually desire and how we behave. And then at the conscious level, the choice to perform them helps people to remain alert to the ways in which they might be being quietly or unconsciously co-opted into scarcity-based mindset and scarcity-based living. Okay. Um, can you tell me a bit about the Christian influence behind this project? So this performance is definitely informed by our Christian faith, and that's what underlies all of Fur's art. But it's not really intended for exclusive Christian engagement as such. And so you don't really need to have any alignment with the faith or even any knowledge of the faith in order to be part of the performance, even though it's faith-based and even though it talks about God. And I think this is similar to the way belief in God plays a role within Alcoholics Anonymous. And so this performance is intended for anyone who, in their honest reflections, has sense their own primal instinct towards scarcity-based fear and all of its associated behaviors like panic buying and hoarding and other forms of selfish living. It's for people who feel helpless or unsure of how to change that, but also don't want to be judged for it. And as such, we draw on the works of Protestant theologian Walter Brueggemann because he has been quite a thought leader in foregrounding honest reflection on this human instinct that's common in individuals and codified in the wider culture and systems, particularly of the West. So yes, this performance is, is Christian insofar as it's trying to help lead cultural life towards peace and, and away from violence in all its forms. And within the rituals lies a kind of belief that God himself is the source of abundance and therefore legitimates and gives legitimacy to an abundance worldview. I guess I think for anyone who's up for going with that, then this performance is for them. But that's not to say that it's Christian insofar as it's a performance just for Christians or their friends. Um, it's definitely a performance for anyone who wants to. And if people do want to become part of the performance, how can they do that? If they go to the Fur website, which is furproduction.com, you can sign up and register to be part of the Honest Citizen and you register as a unit. So you form your unit yourself. And once you've registered with us, then we send you a Honest Citizen membership card, and, which of course you want to flash around everywhere. If we could go out to flash it anywhere. Um, <laughs> <laughs> take a photo and put it on your Flash it to my baby. Yeah. 
Look at my card. She'll just try and eat it. She won't be impressed. <laughs> so that's how you register. And you get a membership card and then we send you the materials as well at that point. And then we link up with you so that you can be part of the live stream events as well so that we can keep in touch as a collaborative performance artwork and artists and as a club. And we are the first unit. I'm well excited. Yeah, you and me. So it sounds like a yeah. <laughs> so we'll be kind of supporting each other when we have those moments of anxiety or I guess moments of clarity when we realise that we are moving towards that scarcity mindset and kind of acting out of fear rather than generosity. We'll be doing a meditation every day mm-hmm. and kind of getting involved in sort of partaking in some of these reflections, which I'm really yeah, I think this will be really good thing for me to do so I'm really excited uh, about getting involved with this so thank you for inviting me well I think I think I think you and I are a good example of how to go about finding your performance unit because I think we've been talking for years about having anxiety so there's already a kind of trust I don't think you form a performance unit with people you don't know so there's got to be an element of trust already because there's things like the confidentiality of it, the knowing that you won't be judged for it. Because if I phone you up and I say, actually, Rach, I really felt today like I was prepared to get into a fight in the supermarket because I was just so terrified of not getting enough supplies for my children or whatever. Mm. That's the kind of thing you need to know the person you're confessing effectively that to is not going to judge you for that, you know? Yeah, no, Absolutely. I'm probably someone who already has a even just base level understanding of kind of who you are um, and what you're about, I think helps as well. I, yeah, I really hope this will help me to be more generous, particularly with my neighbours, yeah, my community. Let's see, let's see where this takes us. I know, right? So at the under, other end of six months, you can look back and just think, do I feel like abundance is something that's managed to get a little bit of root inside my psyche inside my soul rather than this ideal that's always sort of slightly external to me and I'm trying to reach for but isn't within me yeah that'd be good that'd be amazing (laughs) (laughs) that'd be really helpful (laughs) and if nothing else we get to have an excuse to call each other up at the middle of the night although we have to agree on our terms I don't think we're going to phone each other up at the middle of the night I've got do not disturb on my phone mate I'm not going to lie (laughs) call you want at 3am I think we're going to be like a business hours emergency so like between (laughs) 9 and 5 if you have an emotional crisis you can call me (laughs) so I'm up from 6.30 with the baby so anytime from 6.30am you can you can take a crisis call (laughs) yeah (laughs) excellent I'll try and schedule my crises to work with in your time if you could do that that would be fantastic (laughs) (laughs) can't wait it's gonna be great um all right thanks so much Rach enjoy the rest of your evening love to hear Ryan Alma and the fam bye (laughs) see you bye-bye Sometimes something has to be art before it can be anything else. If alcoholism wasn't already a fully accepted thing in our culture, starting the first Alcoholics Anonymous group might be described as performance art. We've talked a lot about scarcity mindset in this episode, but it's not really part of our common parlance. It makes sense to say, I'm an alcoholic in our culture but it would be jarring and confusing for someone to say, I have scarcity mindset. So whilst this mindset remains outside of our shared language, 
and doesn't have rituals to manage it built into the common structures of our society. Any club to help people with it must begin as art. Thank you for joining us. If you don't know who we are, we are Fur. We communicate Christian theology and worldview through contemporary art, cultural artifacts, and new rituals to create fresh encounters with the faith for emerging generations. Stay tuned for more episodes as we reflect together over the next few months of the performance. If you want to become an honest citizen, we'd love you to join us. You can join by visiting our website, furproduction.com, and follow us on Instagram, at furproduction, where you can also experience our other works. This episode was produced by Fur, edited by Mike and Hansen, and the music composed by Officer. Fur. Christianity through art, Christianity as art.